Welcome to Bedtime Stories. I'm Lori Mack. Tonight, we will be enjoying Black Beauty by Anna Sewell, chapters 16 through 18. Chapter 16, The Fire. Later on in the evening, a traveler's horse was brought in by the second ostler, and while he was cleaning him, a young man with a pipe in his mouth lounged into the stable to gossip. I say, Towler, said the ostler, just run up the ladder into the loft and put some hay down onto this horse's rack, will you? Only lay down your pipe. All right, said the other, and he went up through the trapdoor, and I heard him step across the floor overhead and put down the hay. James came in to look at us the last thing, and then the door was locked. I cannot say how long I had slept, nor what time in the night it was, but I woke up very uncomfortable, though I hardly knew why. I got up, and the air seemed all thick and choking. I heard Ginger coughing, and one of the other horses seemed very restless. It was quite dark, and I could see nothing, but the stable was very full of smoke, and I hardly knew how to breathe. The trapdoor had been left open, and I thought that was the place it came through. I listened and heard a soft rushing sort of noise and a low crackling and snapping. I did not know what it was, but there was something in the sound so strange that it made me tremble all over. The other horses were now all awake. Some were pulling at their halters. Others were stamping. At last I heard steps outside, and the ostler who had put up the traveler's horse burst into the stable with a lantern and began to untie the horses and try to lead them out. But he seemed in such a hurry and so frightened himself that he frightened me still more. The first horse would not go with him. He tried the second and the third, and they too would not stir. He came to me next and tried to drag me out of the stall by force. Of course, that was no use. He trod us all by turns, and then he left the stable. No doubt we were very foolish, but danger seemed to be all around, and there was nobody we knew to trust in, and all was strange and uncertain. The fresh air that had come in through the open door made it easier to breathe, but the rushing sound overhead grew louder. And as I looked upward through the bars of my empty rack, I saw a red light flickering on the wall. Then I heard a cry of fire outside, and the old ostler quietly and quickly came in. He got one horse out and went to another, but the flames were playing round the trapdoor, and the roaring overhead was dreadful. The next thing I heard was James's voice, quiet and cheery as it always was. Come, my beauties, it's time for us to be off, so wake up and come along. I stood nearest the door, so he came to me first, patting me as he came in. Come, beauty, on with your bridle, my boy, we'll soon be out of this smother. It was on in no time, and then he took the scarf off of his neck and tied it lightly over my eyes, and patting and coaxing, he led me out of the stable. Safe in the yard, he slipped the scarf off my eyes and shouted, Here, somebody, take this horse while I go back for the other. A tall, broad man stepped forward and took me, and James started back into the stable. I set up a shrill whinny as I saw him go. Ginger told me afterwards that whinny was the best thing I could have done for her, and had she not heard me outside, she never would have had the courage to come out. There was much confusion in the yard the horses being got out of other stables, and the carriages and gigs being pulled out of the houses and sheds, lest the flames should spread further. On the other side of the yard, 
windows were thrown up and people were shouting all sorts of things. But I kept my eye fixed on the stable door where the smoke poured out thicker than ever. And I could see flashes of red light. Presently, I heard above all the stir and din a loud, clear voice, which I knew was Master's. James Howard! James Howard! Are you there? There was no answer, but I heard a crash of something falling in the stable, and the next moment I gave a loud, joyful neigh, for I saw James coming through the smoke, leading Ginger with him. She was coughing violently, and he was not able to speak. Oh, my brave lad, said Master, laying his hand on his shoulder. Are you hurt? James shook his head, for he could not yet speak. Aye, said the big man who held me. He is a brave lad, and no mistake. And now, said Master, when you have got your breath, James, we'll get out of this place as quickly as we can. And we were moving towards the entry, when from the marketplace there came a loud sound of galloping feet and rumbling wheels. "'Tis the fire engine, the fire engine!' shouted two or three voices. "'Stand back! Make way!' And clattering and thundering over the stones, two horses dashed into the yard with a heavy engine behind them. The firemen leapt to the ground. There was no need to ask where the fire was. It was rolling up in a great blaze from the roof. We got out as fast as we could into the broad, quiet marketplace. The stars were shining, and except the noise behind us, all was still. Master led the way to a large hotel on the other side, and as soon as the ostler came, he said, James, I must now hasten to your mistress. I trust the horses entirely to you. Order whatever you think is needed. And with that, he was gone. The master did not run, but I never saw a mortal man walk so fast as he did that night. There was a dreadful sound before we got into our stalls, the shrieks of those poor horses that were left burning to death in the stable. It was terrible, and made both Ginger and me feel very bad. We, however, were taken in and well done by. The next morning, the master came to see how we were and to speak to James. I did not hear much, for the ostler was rubbing me down, but I could see that James looked very happy, and I thought the master was proud of him. Our mistress had been so much alarmed in the night that the journey was put off till the afternoon, so James had the morning on hand and went first to the inn to see about our harness in the carriage and then to hear more about the fire. When he came back, we heard him tell the ostler all about it. At first, no one could guess how the fire had been caused, but at last a man said he saw Dick Towler go into the stable with a pipe in his mouth, and when he came out, he had not one and went to the tap for another. Then the under-ostler said he had taken Dick to go up the ladder to put down some hay, but told him to lay down his pipe first. Dick denied taking the pipe with him, but no one believed him. I remembered our John Manley's rule, never to allow a pipe in the stable, and thought it ought to be a rule everywhere. James said the roof and floor had all fallen in, and that only the black walls were standing. The two poor horses that could not be got out were buried under the burnt rafters and tiles. Chapter 17. John Manley's Talk The rest of our journey was very easy, and little after sunset we reached the house of my master's friend. We were taken into a clean, snug stable. There was a kind coachman who made us very comfortable, and who seemed to think a good deal of James when he heard about the fire. 
There is one thing quite clear, young man, he said. Your horses know who they can trust, and it is one of the hardest things in the world to get horses out of a stable when there is either fire or flood. I don't know why they won't come out, but they won't. Not one in twenty. We stopped two or three days at this place and then returned home. All went well on the journey, and we were glad to be in our own stable again, and John was equally glad to see us. Before he and James left for the night, James said, I wonder who's coming in my place. Little Joe Green at the lodge, said John. Little Joe Green? Well, he's a child. He is fourteen and a half, said John. But he's such a little chap. Oh, yes, he is small, but he's quick and willing and kind-hearted, too, and then he wishes very much to come, and his father would like it, and I know the master would like to give him a chance. He said if I thought he would not do, he would look out for a bigger boy, but I said it was quite agreeable to try him for six weeks. Six weeks, said James. Why, it will be six months before he can be of much use. It will make you a deal of work, John. Well, said John with a laugh, work and I are very good friends. I was never afraid of work yet. You are a very good man, said James. I wish I may ever be like you. Oh, I don't often speak of myself, said John, but as you're going away from us out into the world to shift for yourself, I'll just tell you how I look on these things. I was just as old as Joseph when my father and mother died of the fever within 10 days of each other and left me and my crippled sister Nellie alone in the world without a relation that we could look to for help. I was a farmer's boy, not earning enough to keep myself, much less both of us, and she must have gone to the workhouse but for our mistress. Nellie calls her an angel, and she has good right to. She went and hired a room for her with old widow Mallet, and she gave her knitting and needlework when she was able to do it. And when she was ill, she sent her dinners and many nice, comfortable things, and was like a mother to her. Then the master, he took me into the stable under old Norman, the coachman that was then there. I had my food at the house, my bed in the loft, and a suit of clothes and three shillings a week so that I could keep Nellie. Then there was Norman. He might have turned round and said that at his age he could not be troubled with a raw boy from the plow tail, but he was like a father to me and took no ends of pains with me. When the old man died some years after, I stepped into his place. And now, of course, I have top wages and I can lay by for a rainy day or a sunny day as it may happen. And Nellie is as happy as a bird. So you see, James, I'm not the man that should turn up his nose at a little boy and vex a good, kind master. No, no. I shall miss you very much, James, but we shall pull through, and there's nothing like doing a kindness when tis put in your way, and I am glad I can do it. Then, said James, you don't hold with that saying, everybody look after himself and take care of number one. No, indeed, said John. Where should I and Nellie have been if master and mistress and old Norman had only taken care of number one? Why, she in the workhouse and I hoeing turnips. Where would Black Beauty and Ginger have been if you had only thought of number one? Why, roasted to death? No, Jim, no. That is a selfish, heathenish saying, whoever uses it. And any man who thinks he has nothing to do but take care of number one, why, it's a pity, but what he had drowned like a puppy or kitten before he got his eyes open. That's what I think, said John, with a very decided jerk of his head. James laughed at this, but there was a thickness in his voice when he said, You have been my best friend, except my mother. I hope you won't forget me. 
Oh, no, lad, no, said John. And if I can ever do you a good turn, I hope you won't forget me. The next day, Joe came to the stables to learn all he could before James left. He learned to sweep the stable, to bring in the straw and hay. He began to clean the harness and help to wash the carriage. As he was quite too short to do anything in the way of grooming Ginger and me, James taught him upon Merry Legs, for he was to have full charge of him under John. He was a nice little bright fellow and always came whistling to his work. Merrylegs was a good deal put out at being mauled about, as he said, by a boy who knew nothing. But towards the end of the second week, he told me confidentially that he thought the boy would turn out well. At last, the day came when James had to leave us. Cheerful as he was, he looked quite downhearted that morning. You see, he said to John, I'm leaving a great deal behind. My mother and Betsy and you and a good master and mistress and then the horses and my old merry legs. At the new place, there will not be a soul that I shall know. If it were not that I shall get a higher place and be able to help my mother better, I don't think I should have made up my mind to do it. It is a real pinch, John. Aye, James, lad, so it is. But I should not think much of you if you could leave your home for the first time and not feel it. Cheer up. You'll make friends there. And if you get on well, as I'm sure you will, it will be a fine thing for your mother. And she will be proud enough that you have gone into such a good place as that. So John cheered him up. But everyone was so sorry to lose James, and as for Merrylegs, he pined after him for several days and went quite off his appetite. So John took him out several mornings with a leading rein when he exercised me, and trotting and galloping by my side, got up the little fellow's spirits again, and he was soon all right. Joe's father would often come in and give him a little help as he understood the work, and Joe took a great deal of pains to learn, and John was quite encouraged about him. Chapter 18. Going for the Doctor One night, a few days after James had left, I had eaten my hay and was lying down in my straw fast asleep when I was suddenly roused by the stable bell ringing very loud. I heard the door of John's house open and his feet running up to the hall. He was back again in no time and he unlocked the stable door, came in, calling out, Wake up, beauty! You must go well now if you ever did! and almost before I could think, he had got the saddle on my back and the bridle on my head. He just ran round for his coat, and then he took me at a quick trot up to the hall door. The squire stood there with a lamp in his hand. Now, John, he said, ride for your life. That is, for your mistress's life. There is not a moment to lose. Give this note to Dr. White. Give your horse a rest at the inn and be back as soon as you can. John said, yes, sir and was on my back in a minute. The gardener who lived at the lodge had heard the bell ring and was ready with the gate open, and away we went through the park and through the village and down the hill till we came to the toll gate. John called very loud and thumped on the door. The man was soon out and flung open the gate. Now, said John, do keep the gate open for the doctor. Here's the money. And off he went again. There was before us a long piece of level road by the riverside. John said to me, Now, beauty, do your best. And so I did. I wanted no whip nor spur, and for two miles I galloped as fast as I could lay my feet to the ground. I don't believe that my old grandfather, who won the race at Newmarket, could have gone faster. 
When we came to the bridge, John pulled me up a little and patted my neck. Well done, beauty. Good old fellow, he said. He would have let me go slower, but my spirit was up, and I was off again as fast as before. The air was frosty, the moon was bright, and it was very pleasant. We came through a village, then through a dark wood, then uphill, then downhill, till after eight miles run we came to the town, through the streets, and into the marketplace. It was all quite still except the clatter of my feet on the stones. Everybody was asleep. The church clock struck three as we drew up at Dr. White's door. John rang the bell twice and then knocked at the door like thunder. A window was thrown up and Dr. White, in his nightcap, put his head out and said, What do you want? Mrs. Gordon is very ill, sir. Master wants you to go at once. He thinks she will die if you cannot get there. Here is a note. Wait, he said. I will come. He shut the window and was soon at the door. The worst of it is, he said, that my horse has been out all day and is quite done up. My son has just been sent for and he has taken the other. What is it to be done? Can I have your horse? He has been at a gallop nearly all the way, sir, and I was to give him a rest here, but I think my master would not be against it if you think fit, sir. All right, he said. I will soon be ready. John stood by me and stroked my neck. It was very hot. The doctor came out with his riding whip. Oh, you need not take that, sir, said John. Black Beauty will go till he drops. Take care of him, sir, if you can. I should not like any harm to come to him. No, no, John, said the doctor. I hope not. And in a minute we had left John far behind. I will not tell you about our way back. The doctor was a heavier man than John and not so good a rider. However, I did my very best. The man at the toll gate had it open. When we came to the hill, the doctor drew me up. Now, my good fellow, he said, take some breath. I was glad he did, for I was nearly spent, but that breathing helped me on, and soon we were in the park. Joe was at the lodge gate. My master was at the hall door, for he had heard us coming. He spoke not a word. The doctor went into the house with him, and Joe led me to the stable. I was glad to get home. My legs shook under me, and I could only stand and pant. I had not a dry hair on my body. The water ran down my legs, and I steamed all over. Joe used to say like a pot on the fire. Poor Joe. He was young and small, and as yet he knew very little, and his father, who would have helped him, had been sent to the next village. But I'm sure he did the very best he knew. He rubbed my legs and my chest, but he did not put my warm cloth on me. He thought I was so hot that I should not like it. Then he gave me a pail full of water to drink. It was cold and very good, and I drank it all. And then he gave me some hay and some corn, and thinking he had done right, he went away. Soon I began to shake and tremble and turned deadly cold. My legs ached, my loins ached, and my chest ached, and I felt sore all over. Oh, how I wished for my warm, thick cloth as I stood there and trembled. I wished for John, but he had eight miles to walk. So I lay down on my straw and tried to go to sleep. After a long while, I heard John at the door. I gave a low moan, for I was in great pain. He was at my side in a moment, stooping down by me. I could not tell him how I felt, but he seemed to know it all. He covered me up with two or three warm cloths and then ran to the house for some hot water. He made me some warm gruel, which I drank, 
and then I think I went to sleep. John seemed to be very put out. I heard him say to himself over and over again, stupid boy, stupid boy, no cloth put on, and I dare say the water was cold too. Boys are no good. But Joe was a good boy after all. I was now very ill. A strong inflammation had attacked my lungs and I could not draw my breath without pain. John nursed me night and day. He would get up two or three times in the night to come to me. My master, too, often came to see me. My poor beauty, he said one day, my good horse, you saved my mistress's life, beauty. Yes, you saved her. I was very glad to hear that, for it seems the doctor had said that if we had been a little longer, it would have been too late. John told my master he never saw a horse go so fast in his life. It seemed as if the horse knew what was the matter. Of course I did, though John thought not, at least I knew as much as this, that John and I must go at the top of our speed, and that it was for the sake of the mistress. That is all for tonight. Come back again for chapters 19 through 21. Good night.